the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls so that we can answer your Bible questions. Fall in love with your Bible, you will fall in love with Jesus. That's what our teaching program says at the end of every program, and we know that's to be true, so we want all the questions that you have for us, and we'll do the best that we can. Uh, here are our phone numbers for your live calls and questions. It's 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send the questions in. Additionally, if you're driving in your car, especially on a rainy day, we want you to be careful. You can use the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the call now button hands-free, and you can uh, be connected directly to our studio. Uh, Not anything going on today, so we'll get right to the questions. But before we do that, one thing, we're getting a lot of calls here at the church uh, for Pastor Raul Reese's visit here uh, a week from Thursday, October the 5th. Um, KSLR has, has given away all the, the seats, so there's just no more room available. Uh, we've got a little bit of room for some people here from Calvary Chapel, but the response uh, from the radio audience uh, for, for Rawls' teaching ministry has been exceptional. wish we had a lot bigger building, but we don't. I will say this, and I'll be reminding you of this uh, probably every day between now and then, is we will be live streaming Pastor Rawls' um, message uh, on that Thursday, October the 5th. You can go to calvarysa.com, just hit the live stream uh, entry, and uh, you you can watch it live, and I trust you will be blessed as a result. Again, I'll keep mentioning that in the days to come. Uh, yesterday, as we closed, we had a really good question from Jose uh, from San Antonio. Unfortunately, it was only two minutes left in the program, and I didn't have time to really answer it. So I want to do that today. His question was about Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. Uh, what is the the uh, ten horns and seven heads, ten crowns, um, and uh, uh, from the dragon from Revelation chapter 13? Um, Jose, you'll you'll understand in just a minute why I said it'll take longer than two minutes. So uh, I I try not to bore you with this, but let me read the first two verses, and then we'll sort of explain it. Verse 13 says, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Now, this is obviously imagery here. John is seeing a vision of things in the far future. God has sort of given him a a picture of heaven and earth during this terrible time that we call the Great Tribulation. And a lot of this language is symbolic rather than literal. We know it's not going to be a literal dragon or a literal beast. They represent something else. 
And these are very Jewish ways, Jose, of explaining uh, these images so that John would understand and be better able to communicate. Now, when he sees this beast coming out of the sea, the sea usually represents Gentile nations. And the beast that we meet here is the uh, man that we call the Antichrist. If the symbolism is consistent that the sea represents Gentile nations, it means that the Antichrist will be a Gentile. Now, that is a very disputable um, statement. Uh, uh, There is a a wide diversity of opinion. Um, But uh, again, I I believe in the, 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 the hermeneutic called expositional constancy. And I think that's what he is being uh, what is being communicated here. The one problem, Jose, that most people have with the Antichrist being a Gentile is that they believe that Jews will never follow the leadership of a Gentile. Uh, remember, there is going to be a spirit of deception. And even the elect would be deceived, the Bible tells us. So I think that the Antichrist is going to be, this beast is going to be um, a, a Gentile. Now, There are others, as I said, who believe that he will be a Jew. Uh, I I simply don't agree with that. But again, it's not that vital of 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 a question. Now, the ten crowns, and here's where it gets a little bit difficult to understand, but it's beautiful symbolic language. The ten crowns signify that the beast has authority over ten nations. Uh, In the uh, Great Tribulation, there will be a ten-nation coalition that he will head. And the horns are a biblical symbol, especially in the Old Testament, a biblical symbol of power or authority. Now, the ten nations that are being spoken of here is a revived Roman Empire, the only world empire never to have been defeated militarily. It just sort of sinned itself uh, out of existence. The seven heads... Uh, we we find out later in chapter 17 of Revelation represent the city of seven hills, which is a clear reference to the city of Rome. Now, the ten kingdom alliance or this ten nation alliance is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 where the ten nations are those in power in the 70th week of Daniel. It's the final seven-year period of history on earth as we know it. Now, to many, and especially Americans, It seems impossible that the shift of world power could ever move across the ocean to Europe, but we already can see attempts being made to shift the world's economic power to Europe, and it's not at all unreasonable then to think that once the money moves, so too will the power. So that's a a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Now, you asked about the leopard. He said, the beast I saw resembled a leopard. So we're dealing clearly with symbolic or figurative language. It had feet like those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. So again, it's not a leopard. Uh, the feet don't aren't the feet of a bear, or, and the mouth isn't like the mouth of a lion. It just is a way that God could explain to to um, John what the the intention of this beast is. Uh, this also is a reference to Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel's vision, he saw the three animals here, but he saw them in reverse order. Now, I think that's interesting. I just like pointing out these things. The reason it's in reverse order is that Daniel was looking forward at these kingdoms that hadn't yet come into power. Um, John is looking backward at those same kingdoms. Now, the leopard in Daniel's vision represented the Greek Empire established under Alexander the Great. A leopard is really, really fast. It's kind of sleek and sneaky. And it's interesting that one of the keys to Alexander's great military victories uh, was speed. Now, Alexander's a fascinating uh, subject to study. Uh, He he was a a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, The only thing greater than his intellect seemed to be his ego. He was a great military uh, leader. Uh, He actually invented sandals with cleats on them, which enabled his armies to arrive far ahead of the time when spies said they would arrive. Now, it's exactly the same here. In John's victory, the Antichrist will be like a cat, cunning and cold. The bear, uh, we go back again to um, the prophecy of Daniel. The bear was a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. Bears are fierce. They're protective. They're on the attack. The Antichrist will be on the offense against those he perceives to be his enemies 
in a slow, steady, relentless manner. Now, the lion uh, was a symbol of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, fierce, unfeeling, um, devouring everything that stands in its way. Lions are a symbol of kings. The Antichrist will have total authority over the world, and he will devour everything that stands in opposition to him. Now, the fourth beast in Daniel 7 was a terrifying beast, uh, more than all of the others, more ruthless, more violent, more dominating, and cruel beyond reason. And that was a picture of the final empire, this empire that's going to be revived, the Roman Empire that would follow uh, the Greeks and the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians. The Roman Empire was never defeated military. I said that a little bit early. Daniel's prophecy seems to me to make it clear that this is the empire that will be revived under the rule of the Antichrist. Let me just say a couple of other things about this. The term Antichrist is not the name of the man called the beast here. If he showed up and, and, and announced himself as the Antichrist, well, everybody would be worried. He is going to be... Um, persuasive, brilliant. Um, He's going to have great, great, great charisma. People are just going to like him. The greatest orator probably in the history of the world. That he's called Antichrist simply means that he's he's the opposite of or hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. As beautiful and loving as Jesus is, this man is just as repulsive and hateful and evil. As Jesus came to save the world, the Antichrist comes to dominate or destroy the world and condemn entire generations to eternity in hell. So that's what all of that is about. It's a picture of the very, very, very last times. So I hope that answers your question. Um, Jose, thank you for being patient with me yesterday. 340-9585. Remember, the program's a lot better, more interesting when you're talking, not just me. Here's an interesting question from Vance. He says, Pastor Ron, a church that I've been attending for a couple of years wants me to sign a membership covenant agreement to join. I'm not sure why they want that, and it makes me uncomfortable. Do you require this of people at your church? Uh, Vance, our church is different than most uh, the, the way most churches are structured. Uh, we don't have a membership, a formal membership at all. Um, our running joke here, and we take it seriously, but... Uh, our running joke here is if you show up here a second time, you're part of the family. Um, of course, we're talking about the greater family of Christ, but we have a family in the local church here. And we don't have a uh, a rigid membership role at all. We don't make anybody sign anything. Um, we, we just don't see that that's biblical. Uh, we're all members of the same body. That body is the universal church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ. And we function here as just one segment, one tiny, tiny, tiny segment of that body throughout the centuries. And to um, infer that membership, uh, when Paul says that we're all members of one another, um, means to sign a membership covenant or have a membership agreement or or commit as a member to, to tithing or to do any other kind of thing. is is kind of a stretch in my opinion so uh no we don't do that at all if you're uncomfortable i wouldn't sign it i would just tell them look i've been coming here for a couple of years and uh, i love the church and i'm getting fed here and i'd like the opportunity to serve um from my perspective if you like the church the only reason to become a member uh, vance would be to 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 serve If, if they won't let you serve without being a member then then it might be something worth. But be careful about signing a covenant. God said, let your yes be yes. Uh, and the membership covenants um, um, ask people to submit to discipline processes, things like that. It's not a bad thing. I just don't think it's a biblical thing. We can do all of that as we do here at Calvary Chapel without having people sign a membership covenant at all. Uh, I would be a little bit uncomfortable uh, about doing that. Um, let's go to line one and talk with Luke. Luke is at his daycare in San Antonio. Hi, Luke. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Um, good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Can I tell everybody that it was your birthday this last week? Yes. It, Luke was eight years old last week. Happy birthday. Thank you. 
so <laughs> What's your question, Luke? Question. First um, question, okay. So, why did um, God, why didn't God create Earth earlier? Why didn't he create it earlier? Well, he created a very, very long... Yeah, he created it a very long time ago, so we don't know. But here's what we do know, Luke. Everything God does, he does at exactly the right time. And that's one of the things that we have to know by faith. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. Okay. What's your other question, Luke? Um, let me think. Um, let's see here. Did did you forget? Yes. Okay, that's okay, Luke. God bless you. I love you very much. Thank you. God bless you. I love you too. Thank you, Luke. Bye-bye. <laughs> Obviously, I know Luke. Uh, Luke's got such a great story. Uh, when he came up to me last week, he said, Pastor Ron, I just turned eight. Uh, Luke is a, a baby that many of you um, prayed for uh, a long time ago. Uh, Luke was um, a miracle baby. Um, Mom couldn't hold uh, a baby, and, and uh, she has, uh, Luke has eight brothers and sisters in heaven. And everybody was trying to get Mom to give up, and we just said, do what? God's putting on your heart to do. And one evening at a at an afterglow here at Calvary Chapel, um, Lord gave me a word that that God wants to answer her prayers. And Luke was born. Boy, did we ever pray for this baby! Every day he was in mom's womb, and he was born. He is smart, and he he's fluent in two languages, English and German. He, his family's in the military. They got transferred to Germany not long after he was born, about a year, I think, and then God loves me so much, he brought him back, uh, but uh, what a wonderful, wonderful gift from God he is. So, Luke, thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jeremy. He says, is it okay to pray for someone to die if they're in a lot of pain? Um, no, Jeremy, I don't think it is. It's better to pray that God would heal them or that God would give them the grace not just to survive in their pain, but to thrive in their pain. You see, this is a question that we get a lot, especially in a culture that, you know, is all for mercy killing and, and putting people out of their misery. But, Jeremy, it's a very different thing, especially if the person in a lot of pain is an unbeliever. Because the pain that they're in on earth, no matter how horrible it is, and I've seen people die unbelievably painful deaths. But if they're an unbeliever, that pain is nothing compared to the pain that awaits them in an eternity separated from God. So if we pray for somebody to die, if, if, if we allow doctors to make those decisions, even if we allow the people to make those decisions, we're condemning them to an eternity worse than they could ever imagine. So no, what we can pray is, Lord, give them grace, sufficient grace to, to deal with the pain. Give them a peace that passes understanding. If they're not a believer, we can pray every day, Lord, before you take them, save them. We want them to be saved. And every day we have the opportunity to share. You know, every day that somebody's alive, having rejected Jesus Christ up to that point, every day is another opportunity for the Holy Spirit in response to our prayers to deal with that man or that woman's heart. So no, Jeremy, it's not okay to pray for someone to die if they're in a lot of pain. Now, you might say, well, what about Christians? They're going to heaven. Well, then we understand more than ever that death and life belong to God. Those decisions belong to God. And we're to give Him free will to do what's best because God's will is always the best. So here's what we pray for. Lord, help them if they're pain. Help them to thrive even in their pain. According to your will, Lord, maybe you could heal. 
happen most of the time. When that angel comes to meet them in their hospital room or at home, they go right into the presence of Jesus and they don't have any questions or complaints, I promise you. So, Jeremy, start praying a little bit differently. Philip says, what does it mean to claim your healing by faith? Um, Philip, in, in, the, in the Prosperity Church, the Health and Wealth Church, um, that's just a, a spiritual sounding way that, that makes no sense because it's nonsense. Um, you know, in the prosperity movement, they believe that your words can actually snare you. So if somebody prays for you, say a, an evangelist or somebody who has a healing crusade, and they touch you and you fall down, um, you're supposed to say, oh, I claim my healing by faith, even though you're still sick, even though you're still in pain, uh, which means you're really lying. I claim it by faith. There's no value in that. That's not God at all. That's this silliness that disguises itself as Christianity, and we see it all too often. Now, Philip, the reason this is an important question is because when people are taught this nonsense, they're given false hope. And I tell our church here at Calvary Chapel all the time that false hope is worse than no hope at all. It's the only condition in life that's worse than no hope at all. So we're either healed or we're not. You notice when Jesus healed people, they got up right away and walked? It wasn't a process. It wasn't throwing down crutches and pretending everything was okay. I have a sister who would always say, I'd say, how are you doing? She goes, well, you know, I've been going through some medical problems, but I'm claiming my healing by faith. And, and I just think, her name is Christy. Christy, stop that. It just makes no sense at all. I think the way to deal with God when you're sick or when things are, are, are difficult is to be honest. Be honest. Say, Lord, I'm hurting. I need, I, I'm in pain. I need extra grace. But to deny that you're in pain or to deny that your body's sick can't be of any possible benefit at all, ever. And yet that's what these false teachers do. I was listening to one. I have a habit, a bad habit. Paul always leaves the room when I do it, but I'll change around and I'll turn to TBN once in a while just to see who's on and listen for a minute. I can't stand anymore. And Kenneth Copeland was on the other night, and, and there wasn't a single thing that came out of his mouth that was true. Not a single thing. And all I could think about was the people that he's deceiving. And he's going to have to stand before God on the Day of Judgment and answer for that. And Paul and I started talking very briefly. How, how can a Christian, a real Christian, do that? Now, I, I don't. No, I can't judge his heart. I don't know if he started out well and just got deceived or got infatuated with the money, the fame. I don't know. But how's he going to explain that to Jesus if he's an unbeliever and his teaching is false doctrine, heresy? If he's an unbeliever, he's going to be one of those who call Jesus Lord. And Jesus will say, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I tell you to do? Depart from me, for I never knew you. If he's a believer, he's going to answer for all those people that he misled. I, I just, all I know is I wouldn't want to be him. So, Philip, that's what they mean by claiming they're healing by faith. It just doesn't make any sense at all. It's sort of uh, pointless. Um, just pointless. I wish I didn't have to answer that question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We're inside three minutes here for this half of the program. We would love your live calls and questions. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. You know, Philip. Um, uh, one more response to that. There is a group of Christians, real believers, well-meaning, good-hearted people. Uh, I actually was one of them at the very beginning of my walk with Jesus 26 years ago. Who sort of believed everybody who called himself a pastor. And there's always among those people who say, well, why would you say anything bad about someone like that? Here's why. And I didn't say anything bad about him. I said, 
his teaching was false, a lie. Biblical churches, churches where the Bible is believed and taught instead of perverted and manipulated, we're the ones who have to clean up the mess. We're the ones who see the shipwrecked faith of people because those health and wealth promises didn't pan out. We're the ones who have to explain to them that God didn't reject them because their faith was weak or because there was something wrong with them. But what the Bible really says is that in this world we will have tribulation. We live in a fallen world and people get sick and die. And yet this false teaching, God wants you to be healthy, God wants you to be rich, it's never God's will that anybody should get sick. Well, all we have to do is open our eyes and see that none of that is true. And the shipwrecked lives are a tragedy. That's why, Philip. Hey, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585. Here's another really sad question for me as a pastor today. Marilyn says, uh, Pastor, on the United Methodist Church is battling between ordaining gay pastors and doing same-sex wedding. Weddings. Why is there any dispute? Marilyn, here's why. The Methodist Church threw away the Bible a long time ago. Now, the sound you're hearing right now is John Wesley turning over in his grave. John Wesley, a great preacher, a great evangelist. His brother Charles, a great worship leader and singer. And look what's happened to the movement they began. They threw away the Bible a long time ago. And Marilyn, when you throw away the Bible, the world wins. And those who are in the church, who are in the denomination, one of the things about the United Methodist Church is they've been around for so long in our country as a denomination that people have historic ties to the church. And and nobody likes to leave family or friends. No one likes to leave churches that in some cases were built uh, with their own hands. And we kind of get in the habit of just doing the same thing. And a long time ago, they threw away the Bible. They do not believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. In fact, they, 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 they really do nothing at all with the Bible. They will throw out verses that Jesus teaches in their messages. But by and large, the, the, the biggest part of the United Methodist Church is uh, apostate. And so they want what the world wants. They're doing the work not of God, but they're doing the work of the little g-god of this world, the devil. And people are being deceived in their midst, and there is going to be a huge price to pay. Jesus said that anyone who makes one of my little ones stumble, it would be better that he'd never been born. There'd be a millstone tied around his neck. He'd be thrown the deepest part of the, of the sea. The idea is that these men are going to be judged, and women are going to be judged. There's also a preponderance of women reverends, pastors in the United Methodist Church. So, again, the Bible simply means nothing to them. They could not disagree more strongly that the Bible has its place only as a guide. But what matters more, their words, would be loving and accepting and being kind to people. And from their perspective, that simply means that you do what makes somebody happy. And if somebody who is uh, wants to marry somebody of the same gender, that's what makes them happy. It's going to be okay. There's always going to be a dispute when tradition or modern thought 
or the culture we live in has as much or more authority than the Bible. And make no mistake, Marilyn, every religion that calls itself Christian, every denomination that places tradition on an equal level in terms of authority with the Word of God, they've lost their way. It's just that simple. They've lost their way. And that's what's happened to the United Methodist Church. It's already happened in the Episcopal Church. It's happening in other mainstream denominations. It's just a battle that's long been lost. And now the fight is, why don't you guys go along to get along? That's that's what they say. So it's sad. And Marilyn, I don't tell people on this program uh, to leave a church unless they're apostate or unless they're teaching uh, rank heresy. And um, um, if you are asking the question because you are a member of the United Methodist Church, and there are still some United Methodist pastors who are waging this battle. If you belong to one of those, stay where you are. Pray for your pastor. He is in the minority and he is getting beat up. So if you're one of those churches, good. If you're not, then leave. If you want to stay United Methodist, find one that still believes that the Bible is God's word and the sole authority for practice in life. They're harder to find now, unfortunately. But that's why the battle is going on. Presbyterian Church is fighting the same battle. And we're going to see this battle over homosexual relationships and gay marriage continue. And I would add transgenderism now. We're going to see this battle uh, in every church, everywhere. You know, I'm pretty old. I'm going to go off for just a minute, Marilyn. I hope you don't mind. I'm pretty old, and um, I expect that as I finish my race, my course with the Lord, uh, it, it will still be legal for me to teach the Bible and say this is sin and this is not sin. But I think of Pastor Ken who will take over for me. And then I think of the, the younger men who will, who will come behind him should the Lord tarry. And this is going to be a battle that's going to cost them. We are living in a time when, make no mistake, it's not going to be long before what we say from the pulpit is declared illegal. Hate speech. And the overwhelming pressure that we face to be accepted. And you're seeing it even in churches that aren't aligned with denominations, churches that have a pretty good history of, of believing the Bible and teaching the Bible. They are now being softened by the culture that we live in to include uh, and affirm, by the way, uh, gay men and women and transgendered men and women welcoming them into the flock without repentance. And this is a battle that we're not anywhere close to seeing the end of. In fact, we're right at the beginning of it, and it's going to be to the point where those of us who hold to a biblical interpretation of sexuality are going to be considered as the KKK was in the days of the civil rights marches. And that's sad. More than you asked for, Marilyn. Thank you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Adam. Pastor Ron, what do you think of multi-site video churches? Adam, I'm not a fan at all. I think um, every church and the people that attend that church or that site needs a flesh and blood pastor or staff of pastors to minister to them. I don't think a one-dimensional big talking head on a screen is anything more than a monument to the ego of the pastor who's on that screen. I think it deprives gifted men of pursuing the calling of God in their lives. You know, one of the things that we've done here at Calvary Chapel, we are now up to 27 church plants here, and I would never consider sending my face, God forbid, wouldn't that be horrible? You go into a big screen. Can you imagine my face on a huge screen? But what I, we have done is send pastors who are called by God 
pastors who will love the people and pray for the people and teach the people and worship with the people. Pastors that will be there. You can't be counseled in a time of grief by a face on a screen. So I just think it's sort of a compromise with modern technology. I think it feeds the ego of the man who thinks all the people in those other places can't live without him. But I think the biggest damage, Adam, is that it deprives people of being loved by a shepherd called by God. You know, Adam, pastors are not supposed to be celebrities. You know, some of us are are more well-known than others, to be sure. But we're supposed to be servants, taking the low seat. We're not to be served by the people we minister to. That's a contradiction in terms. Instead, we're supposed to serve them. We're supposed to give our lives for them. We're to pour ourselves out. Paul said that he was spent, meaning I have nothing left, but still spending at the same time, going above and beyond. And I just think what we've done, our ecclesiology and in our church culture has just fallen into a a sad state of disarray. I think when you see these popular, polished speakers I think it grieves the heart of God. So that's the best I can do with that one, Adam. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Daniel. Daniel says, Why don't Christians boycott companies like Target and others who are so active in support of unbiblical lifestyles? Well, Daniel, that's a a decision for you to make. You know, again, why do we need company in doing what we do? Why can't we just take a step of faith, do what the Lord is leading us to do. Now, Daniel, it's okay for you to boycott Target. But don't expect anybody to join you. You know, Christian companies are few and far between. And we don't live in a bubble. We live in this world. We're not of the world, but we live in the world. So when you go into Target and you see a transgender bathroom, you don't have to go into it. But if another Christian's conscience doesn't bother them and they go to Target because it's cheap and because it's got a good stock of things, well, then they have the freedom to do it. Just as you have the freedom, Daniel, not to go to Target, they have the freedom to go. Now, let me throw a monkey wrench in this. Do you drink coffee? It's easy to get on this bandwagon. Let's boycott companies that support unbiblical lifestyles. But nobody is as aggressive or as far left as Starbucks is. Now, if I sat at my pulpit and told people in my church that if you go to Starbucks, I'm going to be so mad, I'm going to be so disappointed because you're supporting a gay agenda. I don't know how they would respond. I mean, they they would respond. They know I wouldn't do something like that. But, you know, Starbucks is like a Christian drug. Now, I don't drink coffee. I've never had to drink a coffee. But all I have to do, we got a Starbucks right up the street, and it doesn't seem to matter what time of day or night it is. There's always a long line. I see people walking into our sanctuary all the time with Starbucks cups. So, you see, you can't be selective just because Target made the media. Do what is right for you, between you and God, and have no expectation of another Christian ever doing what you want them to do or what you think they should do. Romans 14.23 says that anything not of faith is sin. If I could open the Bible and say it's a sin to go to Target because they support LGBTQ lifestyles, then I could say don't go. But everybody has the freedom to do on their own as the Lord wills between them and God. It's not a universal thing. I think the biggest point I want to make here, Daniel, is this one. Don't be 
in need of support to stand in the position that you hold important to your heart. Don't need big groups of people. So boycotts are kind of silly. They're not very effective. And personally, I don't think they're a very good witness. But if you do, God bless you. It's okay. And I would never, ever think that you were doing anything wrong. So, Daniel, I hope that is clear. 340, isn't it true we want we want black and white answers? This is right, so let's do this. This is wrong, so everybody shouldn't do this, or everybody should do the other. Walking with Jesus is a very individual thing. When we get to Romans, the later chapters, we see Paul deals with these very issues. So, Daniel, I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, I'm really hard on myself when I mess something up. How does God see me when I've done something wrong? Anonymous, I'm assuming you're a born-again believer. If you're a born-again believer, here's how he sees you from the Song of Songs. How beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. In other words, when you mess up something, do you think God's surprised? God who lives outside of time and space and knows everything about you, he knows every thought you have. Do you think he's surprised? Do you think he's in heaven going, oh, I can't believe Anonymous did that. What am I going to do now? So here's what you do. You say, Jesus, I did it again. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then you accept his forgiveness. And then you move forward. No guilt. I tell our church all the time that Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is a no-guilt zone. Guilt is good if you're guilty, but once you repent and ask for forgiveness, it's done. And we need to enjoy that. Thanks, Anonymous. I appreciate it. Now we got a phone caller, Anonymous, on line one. Thank you for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yeah. Um, my, past, my pastor, um, I've had some trouble with. I know we've been talking about pastors on your broadcast today, and you know, I know they need our prayers. I need our support. Uh, my question is, can a pastor be an introverted and still be a pastor? I had to leave a church after a year and a half or two years, and I had a meeting with our pastor, and I just told him that uh, I felt so disconnected that, uh, you know, I had to leave. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I know it seems selfish, but there's more to it than what I'm I'm letting you know. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, I just wanted to have your take. We talked one time. I'm extroverted. He told me he was introverted. And there's probably pros and cons to that. But um, anyhow, it didn't turn out good for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry for, for your experience. Anonymous, let me say God bless you for going and talking to him about it. I think that's the real key. You go talk to people that way. If you have to go separate ways, you can do so without animus. And, um, you know, it's it's just, um, uh, God bless you for doing the right thing. Um, you know, a lot of us as pastors are introverts. We like to study. Um, I, I have really, really good friends who would rather be in their office studying even than preaching. Or, or you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like the people get in the way of their study time. Uh, and I understand that. That's an impulse that we have to really guard our hearts against. But here's the thing. As a pastor, we're called by God to be Jesus' representative. So we have to step outside of our comfort zone. We have to let God stretch us. There used to be a, a toy called Stretch Armstrong, and you'd pull the, the, the arms to one side and to get really, really long. Well, that's what God does with us. We have to be willing to be stretched outside of ourselves in order to fulfill the calling of God. The Apostle Paul was interesting because he didn't like being alone. He liked being around people. And when he was alone, he'd be discouraged. On the other hand, there are are many, many others who are much more comfortable all alone. And and the, the, the pressure on the social side of things is really, really difficult. So it's your pastor's responsibility, wherever you go to church, to be like Jesus, and that means we need to rely on the power of God's Spirit in order to be who we need to be. We're servants, 
We're people who pray with people. We have to take an active interest in their lives. Um, it, it's really important that a pastor understands that we can't be ourselves. We've got to be who Jesus has called us to be. So that's my perspective on an anonymous, and, and uh, I'm sorry for your pain, but sometimes it's better if it just doesn't match up. Uh, sometimes it's better for you to find a place where you're going to be more comfortable. Does that help a little bit? Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you very much. God bless you. My my pleasure. God bless you, too. I'm sorry. You know, um, it's funny. God gives us what we need. Now, I talk a lot. I do uh, um, three separate Bible studies a week. On the, the third one, Sunday mornings, I do three services. A radio show every day, uh, and and I'm not a really social person. I'm uncomfortable. I'm even awkward in social situations sometimes. So how did God help me to do it? Well, He gave me Paula. You know, I walk into a room and it gets dark. She walks into a room and it lights up. You see, God gives us what and who we need to help us. Paula makes my ministry so easy. She can go up to strangers anywhere and everywhere and just start talking about Jesus. And for me, I wouldn't do that instinctively, but here's what I've done. She's taught me so much that she sort of converted me. Now I'll go up to strangers and start talking to them, looking for an opening for Christ. So social situations can be very, very stressful. Another thing about a pastor, a pastor's never off-duty. And by that I mean if somebody has a, um, a, a potluck dinner at their home or something. Uh, I get invited. I could actually uh, be somewhere every night of the week. I'd be, I'd be dead already. I couldn't handle that. But, I mean, we are invited to do things all the time. But we never get an invitation just to go to dinner. It turns into counseling session. Now, that's okay. But you have to guard yourself against being spread too thin. Uh, for me, it's a constant battle to protect my time of study. At the same time, I have to remember that the people are more important than the books. If I'm walking with Jesus, if I'm in the power of his spirit, then I'm going to do what he did. Remember what he did with the woman in Samaria? I must needs go through Samaria. His disciples were shocked. Jews don't go to Samaria. We don't even like to touch the ground. Samaritans don't talk to us. We don't talk to them. But Jesus said, tough, I have to go. So sometimes we just got to do what Jesus would do. And here I go again. The only way to accomplish it is to just be with Jesus. Let's go to Daniel calling on line one. Daniel, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hey, Ron, I just want to ask you a question. I know you got short on time, but I was going to ask you, sometimes when you talk to... Um, some people, and they say they're saved, right? They say, well, you know, they have, they'll say something like, well, I've got Jesus in my heart. And in yourself, you know, I think to myself, I'm like, well, you know, I don't, like, you know, how can you, I, in my mind, I think, well, I don't think that they're really saved. But at the end of the day, I'm like, well, only you, God, you see their heart. But, uh, you know, I would think that by the way they live their life or, you know, and I'm not saying I know Christians aren't perfect, but how do you, well, the idea that some people say, well, as long as you believe that that's, yeah. and I'm like, no, I, you know, I think James, you know, says, you know, that, you know, I'll show you my beliefs by my works, you know, but yep. I mean, do you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do, Daniel. And uh, how do you yeah, talk to somebody like that? I, yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm always real direct. Uh, I think it's important um, when somebody's living like uh, an unbeliever and they claim to be a believer, I, I usually ask them, what makes you think so? Well, because I believe, well, it, the demons believe and they tremble with fear. Everybody knows who Jesus is, so it's not a matter of intellectual assent to the person of Jesus. It's, it's if you really believe, it's, remember, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. It's Romans 10. If that's what it says, believing in your heart means being changed by what you believe. 
I used to tell people, you know, if I said there was a bomb in this building, and if you really believed me, you'd leave the building. If I said there's a bomb in this building, and you just kind of oh, Pastor Ron, you're funny. You stay here, you get blown up if there really was a bomb. Well, when you meet Jesus, you change. And I think, Daniel, and I think this is important for you to hear. I think we have to ask people what makes them think they're saved. Jesus said, here's the fruit of the being saved, the fruit of the Spirit. is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. How are you doing on that list? It's not about just believing. And so many people are walking around with a false sense of security that I prayed a prayer or I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for the sins of the world. But unless that belief changes you from your core, then it's not legitimate. It's not real. And I think we have to challenge, not judge, but challenge people. And you do that conversationally. And again, the way I do it is simply to say, well, what makes you think you are? Have you ever lived one day for Jesus, one hour just for Jesus? Do you think about him at all during the day, or do you just do what you want to do? And my point is, God, when they made that profession of faith, took them seriously. And when we challenge him, the Holy Spirit's going to come behind us, Daniel, and convict them. And when the Holy Spirit convicts them, they have to answer him. So we've got to walk that fine line between judging them and asking them questions so that the Holy Spirit can convict them. Because only the Holy Spirit can save. Only the Holy Spirit can reach the depths of the human heart. Thanks for the question, Daniel. Hey, the show went really fast for me today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tomorrow is the Wednesday program. We'd love your live calls and questions. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be here tomorrow at 4. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.